Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Chamba, welcoming you to the June 18, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Tomorrow is Juneteenth, an annual observance to remember when Union soldiers enforced the Emancipation Proclamation and freed all remaining slaves in Texas, June 19, 1865. This is an opportunity for people to celebrate freedom and equal rights in the United States, such as it is. I'd like to thank my colleague, Janine Bernstein, for capably filling in for me last week. So on to today's program, my first guest, with my first guest, Anaheim City Council member, Jose Moreno, we head over to the Angel Stadium and surrounding properties as negotiations concerning the Angel Stadium and surrounding properties heat up. Interested parties can attend the City Council tonight if you're listening to this live and follow some money. Then, fresh from recent travel in the Hong Kong realm, where the Chief Administrator blinked, UCI professor, history professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom will speak to the rapidly developing consequential news still breaking there. One China, how many systems? We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for staying tuned. My first guest is Anaheim City Council member Jose Moreno here today to talk about the disposition of the Anaheim Angel Baseball Stadium and its surrounding properties in the vaunted Platinum Triangle. Jose Moreno was re-elected last fall to the City Council representing District 3 in North Central Anaheim. He was first elected for a two-year term on the City Council November 2016 and served as Mayor Pro Tem during 2018. Before joining the Council, Jose Moreno served two terms on the Anaheim City Council District Board of Education from 2006 to 2014. In 2017, he led efforts to adopt a Sunshine Ordinance, as well as efforts for Anaheim's formal acknowledgement of the economic and cultural contributions of immigrants and newcomers alike. He is an associate professor in the Department of Chicano Latino Studies at California State University, Long Beach, where he focuses on Latino education and policy studies. Oh, he has so much he could tell us beyond our immediate topic. He completed his bachelor's at here, UCI, School of Social Ecology, with an emphasis on criminology and human behavior, and his master's and doctorate in administration, planning, and social policy from Harvard University, where he co-chaired the editorial board of the Harvard Educational Review. He's president of Los Amigos of Orange County and has previously served on the boards of Orange County Community Housing Corps and the Orange County Communities for Responsible Development, OCORD, we call uh, shorthand, and uh, have hosted many representing OCORD on this show. The youngest son of an immigrant family, Jose Moreno, was raised in Oxnard, California. His wife and he are living in Anaheim for the last decade with their four daughters in various places at this point. 
Jose Moreno comes to us today from Anaheim in advance of tonight's solid City Council agenda. Welcome to Ask a Leader, City Council member Jose Moreno. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning. Well, first, for all the listeners' benefit, I'd like to make clear that the owner of the Los Angeles Anaheim Angels, Arte Moreno, and my guest council member, Jose Moreno, are not related. Now, at this point, I'd like to start off, What what's the juncture at which the city of Anaheim is facing off with, and I say facing off, I mean with due, due respect, facing off with the Los Angeles Anaheim owner? Well, um, the owner of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim um, had an opt-out option in late 2018 to opt out of a lease that was to run through 2029 uh, in terms of the next opt-out. And despite a year earlier giving us his assurance that he was going to stay for the long term and not exercise the early opt-out lease, he decided to do it on the last day that he could uh, in mid-October 2018. So uh, essentially what that means is that as of that date, that that means that the team would either have to renegotiate a lease or vacate the stadium or negotiate a new lease with the city by October 2019, which would have been this year. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because at that point, as landowners, as a city, uh, we would have options of what to do with that 155 acres of prime time, prime Orange County real estate, uh, negotiate a new deal with the Angels, and negotiate a better uh, lease for the city and its taxpayers. Uh, unfortunately, the city council, a new majority was elected, and they chose to extend the Angels lease for an extra year until December uh, 2020 to allow, presumably, for a calmer negotiation process with the Angels, and that's where we are currently. And currently, Anaheim's lease at this point, the team's the team keeps all the advertising revenue. I can't even imagine what that is. And the city won't see any ticket revenue unless the team sells over 2.6 million tickets in a year. I don't know how hard that is to get to. Is that hard to get to? Well, it is one of the few teams in Major League Baseball that reaches 3 million attendees per year. Uh, so it is one of the strongest teams in regards to attendance. So uh, unfortunately, though, we don't see any revenue out of ticket sales until, you're correct, until there's 2.6 million tickets sold. So we get about 800000 give or take, $600,000 per year from ticket sales. However, part of the lease deal, which was originally the lease that the city constructed with the Disney Corporation, when they owned the Angels, they purchased the team from Gene Autry, and so they owned the team for a while. And in 1996 was right. when the Angels Disney um, uh, created this lease or developed this lease with the city. So when Artie Moreno came in early 2000s, uh, he basically took over the lease. He purchased the team, and with that, the lease, and basically his name was put in instead of Disney. And changed the name at that around that time the, to the Los Correct. Angeles Angels Correct. of Anaheim, making it... Well, tipping his hand about just exactly how how fluid uh, his relationship is with the the sort of the public good uh, and the the public of Anaheim. So, 
we've got then the city gets a two dollars a ticket after that you're talking about that and you're talking about then here you you have a 150 acre facility that you have to scramble and figure out we'll we'll get into what the dynamics of the council are in a little bit but i want to put out some of the uh, some more of the business pieces down so then we can talk about where the the city council dynamic plays such an important role and and why it is that way it's such a persistent kind of a dynamic so and i guess it's important for listeners also to understand this negotiation is extremely difficult because there's the brown act that requires the certain threshold that's exceeded of numbers of public elected officials meeting with away from the public that there's that factor and but there is there's an exclusion an exception made for stadiums of this kind well the the exclusion is in terms of uh, price and terms of payment Uh, so Presumably, under an attorney general's opinion, governing bodies cannot discuss the conditions of a lease uh, or the specifics of a lease outside of the price uh, that you're either selling and or leasing your property as a governing body and the terms by which that will be paid. So other than that, uh, the rest should be discussed in public in terms of, at the very least, the principles and parameters um, and the frameworks by which a price is determined, and certainly then the conditions uh, for payment. So where this b- became more on my radar was I attended a forum that the OCORD hosted one month ago, almost to the day. And so you are affiliated, at least previously, with OCORD and uh, some other organizations. To what extent have different organizations made a larger forum of these negotiations? Well, you know, this was a major issue about four to five years ago. It was put on the city council agenda for an angel uh, lease negotiation. And even though the opt-out not until 2016, 27, 2016 at that time. And the chief negotiator hired by the city recommended that the city council extend their uh, lease option for another two years. So basically there was a window extended of three years uh, to 2019, from 2016 to 2019 for the Angels to opt out. At that time the community was very, got very engaged because that was announced on the weekend of Labor Day weekend, 2013 I believe. And so this is three years before their opt-out year. They were given an additional three years to negotiate, so basically six years. And uh, the community came up very strongly because the initial proposal was to lease the entire land of 150 acres for a dollar a year for 36 years to keep Angels Baseball in Anaheim and 66 years to Artie Moreno's development company based in, I believe, Rhode Island or Delaware for 66 years. So he would lease the land for a dollar a year for 66 years with a commitment that the Angels would stay for 36 years. The community rose up strongly and uh, supported our mayor, Tom Tate, at the time, who was opposing it, the only council member opposing it at the time. And we stopped it. The community stopped it. Um, And that's where we move forward to today. The owner said that he was not going to exercise the option. He was going to stay here for the long term. And so the community kind of trusted that. Certainly I did as a council member. I trusted that uh, at his word and Angels Baseball's word that they were not going to move or look to move out. They wanted a positive relationship. And unfortunately, they dropped an October surprise on us on the eve of the election that they were going to exercise their option in their best interest. 
So my position as a council member is, well, it's in the city's best interest to also look at all of our options. And that's why I uh, disagreed vehemently with the idea of extending the lease agreement because, again, we're talking about 150 acres of prime real estate in Orange County. So I'm very open to ideas and options that might bring the city more revenue. And it was just the two of you that voted against uh, that. So this, to, as we're getting closer to the dynamic. So the community benefits agreement, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what a contract signed by community groups and a real estate developer, what that requires of the developer and what you're contemplating is and, and how with or without beyond the Brown Act, what you can tell us about what specifically community benefits agreement terms you're considering? Sure. Well, just, uh, but to be clear, however, one of the, the really unfortunate things about all this is that the city council to, the, to date uh, has not had a public discussion, uh, at least this iteration of the city council, has not had a public discussion of what we as a council want to see in the use of that land. We, we have not discussed what are the terms of agreement that we would like to have, the points of agreement, uh, what are non-negotiables for us as a city as it relates to any negotiation with Angels Baseball or any other entity interested in that real estate. But for me, certainly, a community benefits agreement is a fundamental uh, component. It does three basic things as far as I understand them. There's a lot of particulars, but first, it does provide for what are called community workforce agreements with the building trades to assure that the work is done with uh, union labor that is certified, that um, has oversight, uh, and that provide in these agreements for local hiring preferences. Uh, so it requires that construction that is done at the stadium or any other property, if you have a community workforce agreement, that a proportion, it could be 25%, 40%, 45% of all hires to build that stadium or rebuild it or any other buildings uh, would be with local residents. Uh, first priority, Anaheim, and then you can go out in the concentric circle to the surrounding cities of Anaheim and then, of course, Orange County. Second, it also assures that the labor that will be providing the services uh, in the stadium and the amenities there um, also have the ability to have collective bargaining agreements so that they are able to collectively organize, collectively bargain uh, for fair wages, for fair benefits, uh, and to assure that basically there's an investment in the worker that will be providing the service that provides a world-class venue. So, Jose Marino, uh, does tonight's agenda that includes some workforce and innovation and other uh, pieces, uh, programs for the city. Is that a, an opportunity for the public to appear and to reflect back to the Anaheim City Council what the intent is for the of the constituents? Sure. Well, uh, unfortunately, because um, the appraisal, uh, our previous city council last year uh, moved to have a formal appraisal of the property with a stadium there or with a baseball team, and an appraisal without a baseball stadium there and to see what the value of the land is. So that was supposed to be ready and prepared by this meeting. Unfortunately, the appraisal uh, fell behind, so it won't be ready until July. So unfortunately, the item isn't on the agenda tonight. However, um, we haven't formally recognized or taken action on a negotiating principle or, or negotiating team as a city the mayor uh, last meeting announced he's inserting himself as the lead negotiator for the city, but that, that in my mind, requires formal city council approval. Um, and certainly... When will uh, that mayor, be on the agenda? That was put on without it being on the agenda. 
um, last meeting. I was oh. absent, unfortunately, but he just announced it um, during a city manager report on Angels Baseball because we ask in the city manager's report for him to give us updates each meeting. We have to individually ask for that. I guess it sort of begs the analogy. <clears throat> There's all this seismic activity around the yes, city yes, council. Yes. Well, for so, those you know, of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Anaheim City Council member Jose Moreno with the stadiums and the moving the moving turf underneath the turf of the, the baseball players there. So you've talked about the existing terms and all that. I, I'd like for you to break down... Some of the uh, you talked about the appraisal, and I, I guess I should quickly ask about the appraisal. Is that someone retained by the? It's the city. It's not. It's not the private prop. It's not the private owner of the the baseball team that has control of that. So that's it's a city contract. The correct. appraiser. We, that, that's correct. We, we okay. contracted with it because it's sort of like appraisal. running the clock, though, <laughs> with that right. deferred important data point there. Right, and part of, I, I, I believe, what may be the complication is the city council uh, added to the appraisal, um, at least this version of the council. Last year, we simply asked, what is the value of the land yes. without a lease agreement in place? Once the Angels announced that they were opting out in October 2020, their lease would end in October 2020, that land is now unencumbered. That means there are no requirements to that land. It's free, it, it's, it's free and clear from any, any barriers right. that a new owner have in taking ownership of the property and or the city wanting to redevelop it or do whatever we want to do with it. Currently, right now, we can't do much of anything with the land because of the lease agreement yes. says that the Angels will have 12,000 parking spots, that they are basically the tenants of the stadium. We can't do anything without their permission because they're leasing it. But once that lease agreement ends, we have full control of everything on that property. And by the way, just to finish up on the agreement, right now, the city gets no revenue from any of the sales of paraphernalia, propaganda, parking. We get no revenue from the stadium other than, again, if they sell over 2.6 million tickets. Uh, and the last point on community benefits agreements, it also includes that, for me, that there will be market-based rent uh, applied because that is a city-owned property, um, that the city residents should receive a revenue. It is our land where the landlords that can go into our general fund to provide um, stronger parks, stronger community services, stronger libraries, public safety, street repairs, and other things that are required of a city to do well by its residents. Um, so those are the key elements that right now are in place. And then the last thing is uh, two things that I would certainly push for us in our negotiations that I'll be making more public is the current lease agreement says that, and that's what Artie Moreno won in the courts um, 12 years ago, is that the lease requires that they have Anaheim in the name, but he said it doesn't say it has to be at the front of the name, and that's why it's called the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. He's required to have Anaheim in the name, but he places it at the end. But, of course, if you watch ESPN or any the games on TV, there is no Anaheim in the name. So I would push in the negotiations that, that Anaheim be a required name at the front end so that people know it's Anaheim because that does bring direct advertising revenue, uh, uh, social media hits and whatnot for us as a city. And it translates to $30 million a year as of 2006 when they lasted the assessment. So if our name is in the team, um, it could bring $30 million more in revenue to the city of Anaheim, uh, according to that study. So the breaking down the aspects of the property up for negotiation, you already mentioned that there is that huge asset, and uh, which I've been informed by those who are much more up to speed on stadium 
financing and, and politics. Neil DeMoss is a, used to be a regular on a, a public affairs show here. But the parking lot asset is huge. It generates so much revenue, and that could be renegotiated. Then there's the, is the state of the art clause right there in the current agreement with Artie Moreno, which obligates the Anaheim city to maintain and upgrade all of the, the aspects of the stadium, including the scoreboard and everything? Well, actually, that's his responsibility per the uh, lease agreement. That's his. Um, that's his agreement. I mean, under, under the original Disney lease, uh, it actually says in Section 10, on terms of maintenance and capital reserve, that the tenant, meaning Angels Baseball, will maintain the stadium in good condition and repair, okay. subject to ordinary wear and tear. And, in fact, it sets a standard in there that it says that uh, the tenant will adhere and the maintenance of the stadium will be at least equal to first-class professional baseball stadiums, such as on the date here of Kansas City and Dodger stadiums, taking into account the age and design of such stadiums. So he's required uh, to upgrade the stadium. He's required to keep it in a first-class first venue. So for the negotiations, it seems to me that the tenant um, is required to maintain it as a first-class stadium. And now I think, for me, if, I, I believe that they're going to push for the, for the city to invest in upgrading the stadium. And that is not the lease that we originally signed as a city, and we should really maintain that because... Um, okay, well, then the, another p- part of this negotiation is the disposition of the adjacent properties, and they have in place, you sh- you rolled that out at at least one of the forums that I was able to attend, a pretty elaborate development order. So it's it's a massive negotiation. And so it, with that in mind, let's talk, let's break down as much as we can with our time together here, is the ultimate leverage that the city possesses. It is, it's just classic how council members seem to underestimate the power they have going into the negotiations. Can you talk to that, Jose Moreno? Yes, well, I, I think as I've you know, read a lot of work on this, both uh, empirical research and certainly opinion pieces and consulted with others in the area, yes. is that council members often, we fall to often what the public falls for, which is the love of a team. And so we get nostalgic and we're, we're one of 30 uh, cities that has a major league team, so we kind of get into the romanticized notion of being a professional sports town, uh, which is great, but it doesn't translate to direct revenue into our city's public, to our general fund. It just it does not. So my understanding is I've read the work is a lot of the work now invested in stadiums is not so much the stadium itself or actually having a team. It's all the development around that stadium yes. that where fans come to eat, they come to the bars, they come many to live. And so it's really the development like LA Live, and then we're seeing it in Texas, around Texas Stadium uh, for the Rangers there. So that's the, that was the vision set up in the mid-'90s. Uh, in fact, in the lease, they call it Sports Town, Anaheim, which, which sounds wonderful. Uh, but that's all right now for us as a council, uh, exactly as you said, to leverage uh, with developers that if you want to develop and make a lot of money for yourselves as developers and, and bring back your investment, your return on investment, it's city-owned land. So the residents are the landlords, so we should also get revenue that will allow us to keep our taxes and fees low as residents and really allow our asset of a stadium and 150 acres to work for the people of Anaheim and not simply for the bottom line of professional sports team owners. So I'm wondering, since Anaheim now has had two election cycles in the last two years with uh, the with district, council districts, does 
does that do anything different with these negotiations and leverage well, that the council members perceive? It, it, it does. Um, absolutely. It's the, you know, the, the question that we're having at a national level. It's a very local question as well about the influence of money and politics. And certainly Angels Baseball, uh, through various associates, invested um, in invest each election cycle for council members and mayors that they feel will serve their interests over the interests of the rest of the city in many ways. And that's certainly not the exception here. Uh, our mayor, Harry Sidhu, um, again, the Angels opted out of their lease in, Oct- in mid-October. Uh, many, uh, several of their executives, as well as their affiliates, uh, did contribute to PACs that um, supported Mayor Sadu and other council members that would serve to their interests. And what was fascinating is when the mayor put up for the council to extend the lease agreement with no conditions, the president of Angels Baseball actually maxed out in a donation to the mayor after the election to his campaign committee. Um, oh. So... For the mayor to now appoint himself as the lead negotiator in, in this high-stakes negotiation really is something that the council should look at. Um, is there a conflict of interest there, given that uh, Angels Baseball has certainly contributed to his campaign? Now, he's one of the lead negotiators for the city. I think we really have to keep those negotiations as honest and transparent and as clean as possible. Well, is that something that I, I know that it can get prickly on the dais there at city council meetings, but is that something you'd call out and say, I, I'm very concerned about this. I want you to explain your relation. or ca- Can you call it out in some fashion? Yes, absolutely. And I plan on, on doing so, uh, given the opportunity. Certainly, as I mentioned in the last meeting, the mayor inserted himself formally into the negotiations as the city representative. While he is the mayor in our city, we are a, a city manager strong city. That means the mayor is simply one of, is the first among equals as council members, that is, he's the ceremonial figurehead of the city, he is the first spokesperson for the city. But in terms of negotiations and contracts and ordinances and all the other policy things that we do, um, the mayor has the same power equal to any other council member, no more, no less. So for him to simply announce that he will be the lead negotiator for the city council on these negotiations is something that I believe requires council action. And so I plan on certainly bringing that question tonight. And what leverage do the constituents possess? How do they express their interest in the most clear, most powerful fashion? Well, we were able to stop a really bad deal uh, in 2014, 2013, 2014. Um, It really is through direct democracy. Um, I really hope residents come out uh, either through phone calls, emails to the city, and showing up to city council uh, chambers to express their concern, to express uh, a demand that these negotiations be public and transparent and fair, and that ultimately we, the seven city council members, with the mayor included, are the, the negotiators for the people of Anaheim. Um, we are not the negotiators for Angels Baseball. We are not the negotiators for the Chamber of Commerce, uh, who are really involved heavily to try to get as much for the private sector as possible on this. Somebody has to look out for the average resident, and that's supposed to be us. So residents need to come out um, and just express their concern that the negotiations be open, fair, and transparent. And for me, two key points especially. One, that we have Anaheim in the team name. That is a point of pride, but also it's an economic question for us as well. Having our, team, our, our city on the team name at the front it has a real economic uh, generator for us. And second, that whatever lease uh, happens of the land, that we get fair market rent uh, for it, or if we choose to sell the land, that, of course, it's sold at market rate. 
to bring the investment home back to the residents. So be it a lease or a sale, because we have those two options, that they be a full market rate based on the appraisal that we're going to expect in, in July. So I guess the, the earnest uh, interviewer in me wants to sort of like reframe or maybe frame it the way you've had examined is there isn't a zero sum. There's a win-win if the council leverages the power they have in the name of the public good and that that would in turn sort of be the would be the floating all the boats floating more boats as far as then giving more of the more into the Anaheim coffers to improve the social network that would make the Anaheim stadium a better stadium to host baseball right that's right and, and the negotiations should, and, and, and this is why I do not begrudge Angels Baseball. Uh, they are a private entity. They exist. They're not a nonprofit. They, they don't exist for any other reason other than to make money. Um, that's, that's their purpose. That's their goal. That's why they exist. And so I don't begrudge them trying to do whatever they can to maximize their options. Um, so that's their right. That's their mission. But at the same time, we as city council members, we also have to say, well, we have to look out for the public good. And I think right now, I believe strongly that because of the influences we mentioned earlier of politics, of campaign donations, of the influence of right. big, huge corporate interests and lobbyists, city council members often feel like um, we end up negotiating against ourselves. And Angels Baseball is out negotiating with Long Beach, the city of Long Beach, who knows what other cities they're talking to. They did this in 2014. So while they're out shopping themselves, trying to get the best deal for themselves, as they said, to quote them, to um, obtain the best options and review all options in the interest of Angels Baseball. Um, I'm asking our city council and mayor consistently, in what ways are we as a city looking out for the best options for our city? So who's looking out for us? Um, And right now it seems we're just sitting back waiting. What do the Angels want to do? Are they going to find a better deal? And then do we have to match it? Versus our city saying, you know, there are a lot of other professional sports teams that might want to come to a, a county that can produce 3 million fans a year. Uh, we have 150 acres of primetime land in, the, in one of the wealthiest counties in the country. Um, are there other developers that may have a huge interest in that land uh, that can bring huge revenues, direct revenues to the city? Uh, is Disneyland interested in a third theme park? We don't know. Might they be interested in that land? Uh, the Honda Center, we just completed a lease with them that was very fair and a good return for the city. With with Mayor Sidhu in, involved in that, seeing the, how that works? Uh, Mayor Sidhu um, has only focused on Angels Baseball. I see. Getting the best deal for Angels Baseball and the city is what he's been saying. And what I'm saying is we are real, we are realtors right now. We are landowners. Yes. Why are we not putting our, our, our land out in the market to see what it might bring? And, you know, Mayor Sadu and the other council members do argue vehemently for the market, the free market. Well, we have 150 acres of land. We believe, I believe, right now, land in that area is appraising at $3 million an acre and selling at $3 million an acre. So if you just base it on that, again, we're waiting for a formal appraisal. But if you just base it on that, 150 acres times three is, could be anywhere from $500 million to $700 million dollars. That's, we could sell the land and put that directly into our general fund targeting our public services, or we can lease the land at that rate, um, amortized. Um, and there are a lot of developers, I'm sure, that will be interested in 150 acres of primetime land that crosses three freeways, freeway accessible. 
Um, and I think we as a city are not viewing ourselves as having a leverage point and a strength as um, landowners here uh, in the interest of the people. Well, we've... Said, yeah. We have to draw, uh, draw this to a close. I am so sorry to say, and there's, I, I want, uh, give us two important dates that are coming up for people besides tonight's city council meeting uh, starting. There's some closed sessions and all that, but in, in earnest, it'll begin around five. But are there a couple other dates before we close? And I can so, just imagine this is an incredible case study for every class you're going to ever teach in academia. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, well, one, tonight is an important date. While it's not on the agenda per se, it will be discussed. I, I will be bringing up some points. Um, but also we have a rent yes, a rent moratorium, uh, a rent-stabilized moratorium for six months on the agenda. And it's really interesting. You, they, They're not paying rent right now, the angels, yet the council um, needs to consider how we control rents for our residents because they're being displaced uh, immensely. So the important dates are July 16th and um, July 30th are the next two council meetings, and that's when we expect the appraisal to come back to the city council. And I'm looking to agendize a workshop and then discussion by the council on negotiating points uh, or non-negotiating, uh, non-negotiating items that we are non-negotiable on, like the name, uh, like market-based rent, right. things like that for the stadium. So July 16th and July 30th are our next two council meetings, and I expect these items to be agendized at that point. Well, thanking you for uh, setting aside time you don't even have today in advance of such a, a heavy schedule. Thank you, Jose Moreno, City Council Member of Anaheim. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. Okay, thank you. We'll be right back with Jeff Wasserstrom, who's going to lay it all out with what's been going on and all the developing news in Hong Kong. Be right back. Don't go away. That was the Encore Saxophone Quartet with Hector Desmond and Titus, and they performed at the Laguna Art Museum last week. That was super cool. Thanks for staying tuned. My next guest returning to Ask a Leader is UCI Chancellor's Professor of History and a Chinese scholar, Jeff Wasserstrom. He's fresh from traveling around the Hong Kong realm where the chief administrator blinked if only for a moment, or maybe she really blinked. It's hard to it's hard to tell. It's still a moving target. Jeff is also professor of law by courtesy and historical writing mentor for the Literary Journalism Program, a, a wonderful program. And they're the ones that are bringing our, our new staff here that are doing an amazing job. His most recent works are as author, American Images of China and Chinese Images of America, 1919 to 2019, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, and his editor... The Oxford Illustrated History of Modern China. His articles have appeared in Index on Censorship State and New Left Review, among a, a wide variety of newspapers, blogs, and journals of opinion. And he's been on podcasts right up until the last second, so you can follow, pick him up wherever uh, his tweets tell you to go listen. He regularly travels to Asia and is on the editorial board of Descent Magazine and is the advising editor for China and for the, for the Los Angeles Review of Books. He completed his, his BA at UC Santa Cruz, his master's at Harvard, and his PhD from UC Berkeley. He joins me in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jeff Wasserstrom. It's nice. It's always nice to be on here. Thanks for having me. Well, I, you know, I kept getting a serious itch. The more things that were breaking, I thought, I hope Jeff is back in town and we get to talk about this. Well, I'm just going to, it's a, it's a 
lightning round of a uh, fast pace of the history. 30 years was the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and we'll break down the, the preferred way you like to refer to that. 22 years since Hong Kong became one of two systems under Chinese rule. Five years since the Umbrella Movement, or Occupy Central. Now, fast forward to Sunday, Monday, two million people gathered in Hong Kong. That's a quarter of the population. Imagine, folks, what those numbers would like if people turned out in those kinds of numbers for any dissent in the U.S. of A. So without getting too much into the red meat of the extradition that was the sort of basis for this, would you talk about the process, Jeff, that led up to the appointed, not democratically uh, elected, Chief Executive Carrie Lam's proposal of this extradition in her swiftly accelerated review process? So... One of the ways to think about this is when Hong Kong went back under Chinese rule in 1997, there was a promise that for 50 years it would be able to operate under uh, different kinds of rules and enjoy a, a fair degree of autonomy. Um, there was even hope that the very limited amount of democracy within China, within Hong Kong under the colonial period when it was a British crown colony would be expanded. What's happened instead is that initially after 1997, Beijing was fairly good at, at not interfering too much, just putting a little bit of pressure on things in, in Hong Kong. The press became a bit more constrained. There was more self-censorship, but many things continued that were very unlike what had happened in mainland cities. When I would go to Hong Kong, I would expect to see people carry out protests. I would expect to see newspapers and books that were critical of the Chinese Communist Party. And those things you still can see within Hong Kong, but over the last a uh, decade or so, there's been a tightening of the screws. And this is a period when, when across China, there's been a tightening of um, control in many ways, and especially during the last um, five years or so under Xi Jinping. Right. And I, I mentioned sort of the massive dissenting sorts of events, but uh, you've been good in every form I've ever been in the same room with you, and you, you're calling out where there's this ratcheting down uh, on liberties that uh, even... Uh, merchants have, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. So, um, so the the red meat though was we'll go back is that there was a a, a murder committed, but it's actually it was a pretense. It's that the issue went away because Taiwan does not want to extradite the the suspect in the murder. Back, to, they do not want to extradite that person. But uh, so the it's, the case doesn't isn't. It's moot at this point. No, really, this was just one more case, one more example. What the chief executive in in Hong Kong, who is elected, but the only people who can be chosen in that election are people who are carefully vetted. So basically, there are a couple of candidates who are can be seen as being fairly reliable from Beijing's point of view in carrying out the kinds of policies that Beijing likes. So there's both some role in selection, but it's a very limited role in the selection. And the 2014 umbrella movement was that began as an Occupy movement and then was called the umbrella movement when locals began using umbrellas to protect themselves from pepper spray and tear gas by the police. The, the cause of that or the ostensible goal of that was to get more of a real um, say in who the chief executive was. And But it was also, like each of these protests have been in recent years, an effort to push back against what's called mainlandization, the efforts to make Hong Kong more like the cities across the border on the mainland. 
So there are many things that make Hong Kong different still. And one of them is, uh, since you brought up the what I call the June 4th massacre of 1989, um, um, there were massive protests in Tiananmen Square and plazas across uh, China. Those were crushed when the military moved into Beijing and killed a large number. We don't know how many. There hasn't been a full investigation, but at least hundreds and probably thousands on the streets of central Beijing near Tiananmen Square. I don't call it the Tiananmen Square massacre because most and perhaps all the killings were near the square as opposed to on the square. And when the Chinese Communist Party denies that there was a massacre or claims that the Western press lies about China, they often fixate on that and try to try to twist it into making it sound as though there wasn't a massacre. There was a massacre. It just it's the main killing. Oh, fields. that's why the distinction. So the main killing okay. fields were near the square, not on the square. And the people who were killed weren't just students, as Americans sometimes misremember it. There were a lot of ordinary bystanders and workers and other Beijingites who turned out to support the students who were killed. So there's a lot of misunderstanding or misremembering, but there was a massacre and it's an important event and it cannot be talked about or commemorated in any parts of the People's Republic of China except Hong Kong and Macau. On Macau, there's, Even a, very, Macau, yeah. on Macau, there's a very small vigil. Macau is the other place that used to be a foreign colony. It was a Portuguese right. colony. And Macau is more tightly controlled than Hong Kong, but there still is the possibility for some discussion of the events of 1989. I actually spent part of June 4th this year, this year. a small part of it in Macau, because I wanted to see what would happen if I went on the internet there, and I could see what did all happen? sorts of things. Okay. I could access anything okay. on the internet that you could ask us otherwise. There was much less discussion of Tiananmen there than in Hong Kong. There's much less um, robust of a civil society. There's less robust of a protest. There are very few protests there, but it's important to note that it, too, is handled differently than mainland cities. On the mainland cities, there's a complete blocking out, and the Internet is scrubbed clean of any discussion of 89. Okay, so fast forward, then uh, we're going to hop all over the, these points we're going to cover today. That to Where were you? Um, were you in mainland China, the People's Republic, at the time at that the extradition protests were starting to build no no i was i haven't been to the mainland since last september so, okay i was in hong kong in march and then again in early june so i was in the most relevant place i was in hong kong i was there on june 4th i spent a little bit of the day in macau and then came back to hong kong and joined with well over 100,000 people in victoria park in this annual ritual of uh, commemoration of, for the martyrs of 1989, where people hold up candles. It's a very moving experience. And what was different this year, yes. in part, was that while there was a looking back for 30 years to the Tiananmen events, there was also an ending by saying, and be out on the streets on Sunday, come out June 9th to protest the extradition law. And June 9th, a few days after the June 4th, uh, there was this massive protest of over a million people against the extradition law. By then, I was back in California just following things. Oh, sorry, intently. Jeff. Sorry. I did get to see one <laughs> protest, though, after the June 4th vigil. I was there in Hong Kong on the evening of June 6th when there was a ver another very powerful small protest by lawyers and other members of the legal profession, all dressed in black, marching silently on the evening of June 6th to show their feeling of uh, that the extradition law is the kind of thing that is making it impossible for them to do the job that they signed up for, which is to protect the rule of law in Hong Kong, 
which is very different from what happens on the mainland. The fear about the extradition law is that anybody that the mainland authorities wants to, feels has done something that they don't like, could potentially say that they need this person brought over to the mainland to stand trial. And unlike in Hong Kong, there's no clear separation of powers between the courts and the police and the government. So that if you are somebody that the government dislikes, the courts are very, very, very unlikely to let you off on something. We can see, we've saw proof this week of the fact that the courts in Hong Kong do still have a degree of independence, the legal system does. Joshua Wong, the international symbol of the umbrella movement of 2014. Who was just released. So he was in jail. He was in jail serving uh, a fairly short sentence for something that with charges going back a few years. And the courts let him out, let him out early, actually, for good behavior. um, Uncanny. And the fact that this could happen in a place where at least the 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 chief executive you know must have want, thought it would be a good idea if he stayed away out of out of the action for this it just shows that there really is a there still is a degree of rule of law in hong kong but it's something that's 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 under siege and that people feel it lawyers feel it even judges feel it there was one judge who in a very unusual move signed um a letter uh, uh, protesting the extradition law and you know this is something judges steer clear of political activity so I, one thing that I've noticed about this unfolding is that there is an amazing amount of courage demonstrated on the, this individual basis you're talking about, but also with the quarter of the population turning out, they were not masking themselves. I mean, they were, they were masked for protection from, from tear gas and that kind of a thing we could see. But uh, that it just... That it, this is a very, very scary stretch for them. There, there's all kinds of data being taken down. There, all their identities are certainly tabulated, but they, the, uh, the enormous courage that they're all demonstrating is something for us to take stock of. No, it's it's staggering. It's really inspiring. There, there is more effort now than five years ago. Even more people are masking themselves to try to protect their identity. More people, when they're being interviewed by journalists, are not wanting to give their names. Um, there's somebody um, I know who um, told me about being at the vigil and feeling kind of glad to have a baseball cap on because that shade there was a drone overhead. Yeah, there were drones overhead, mostly taking photos for the news agencies. And that's part of why we get these incredible photographs of just the size of crowds. But but people weren't thinking about that, weren't thinking about protecting their identity even five years ago when I was um, I was briefly in Hong Kong during the umbrella movement. It was very exciting. I was teaching a class here on global crises when this took place. And I thought, well, I can't go to Hong Kong, I guess, because I'd love to be there to to see this because I study this kind of thing. Right. And then I realized that actually I could spend a few days there and Skype in a class from there because after all, I was studying global crises. Yeah. So it was a very memorable uh, class session. Um, I really wish now that I'd um, recorded it which was Skyping into Irvine with uh, Chris Buckley, who was doing some of the best reporting for the New York Times then. Now Austin Ramsey is doing wonderful reporting on these protests for the New York Times. And there's great coverage by all sorts of other journalists for others. I particularly like the AFP, Agence France Press um, coverage. Um, but there, And Hong Kong Free Press, which does great things, and courts. Anyway, there are many, many good people on the scene. But in 2014, I got Chris Buckley from the New York Times to join me 
a historian named Denise Y. Ho. Oh, we're going to, that's our music but, pairing. But no, see, Denise Y. Ho is a historian. Okay. But she, but Denise Ho, she yes. shares a name with, Denise Ho is a canto pop singer who's done wonderful things, who's, a, who's an activist. Okay. And I just started to hear about in 2014, when actually I co-wrote a piece with the historian, Denise Y. Ho. And um, when it was about to go to print in the nation, they dropped her middle initial. And she said to them, no, you've got to put my middle initial in because I'm the historian, not, right, right. not the canto pop Essential. singer. And since then, the singer, Denise Ho, has become this incredibly inspiring participant in the movement. Unflappable, articulate, and driven. It's really, it's, it's interesting yeah. from, uh, the, for the casual uh, surfer and, on the net and, to see her. And with a beautiful voice. So I'm, I'm reminded, this is just a very personal thing. I grew up um, going to occasional anti-Vietnam War protests with my parents. And at one point, they took all of us to an event in L.A. where Joan Baez was singing. So okay. I think Ooh. of Denise Ho, yes. you know, beautiful voice, daring, speaking out, Utterly principled. I think of her as a kind of Joan Baez for this moment. So, unfortunately, we're going to have to, like, blast through this. That could you break down really fast the constituencies? We talked about how many were turning out, but everybody is, is coming, turning out for these this last protest. So, last Friday, one of the most interesting protests. So, Carrie Lamb, the chief executive, who's now widely disliked, gave a speech in which she, well, talked about how she sees herself as a mother to the Hong Kong people and that she's trying to That was misplaced. Them. Sometimes a mother has to discipline spoiled children. And so it was all the all these things. She has a tin ear, uh, I was quoted as saying, but there's something else, like a tin voice, I think, for, for this. She just says the wrong thing. Tin adjectives. Tin adjectives. And so <laughs> last Friday, there was a group of 6,000 or so actual mothers in Hong Kong who held a mother's protest, 6, all dressed 000, in black, yeah. to say, this is actually what real Hong Kong mothers do. We come out That's in support of the protesters. We don't talk about, we don't chide them in press conferences. So there's been this amazingly uh, creative set of, of protest actions, and that's one of my favorites. If you just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on Radio KUCI. My guest is UCI Chancellor's History Professor Jeff Wasserstrom, recently returned from Hong Kong, and we're talking about there's so many developments since we first talked about how we're going to do this, and the second round, the second lap that Carrie Lam, the chief ex administrator, has taken was uh, sometime within the last 20 hours where she said, if we don't have the confidence of something taking place, she says, then we will not proceed. But I, I want to get to quickly, was this an independent move on her part, or can you tell whether the PRC had a little bit of DNA in this? We just don't know whose idea this particular, the move on the extradition law was. This was an overreach. And so I don't know whose miscalculation, who's miscalculation was. But, you know, what we should see is that the Hong Kong authorities and or Beijing have done a whole series of things in the last couple of years that have that mark erosions of Hong Kong's degree of autonomy. There was the kidnapping of booksellers uh, yes. a few years ago. There have been other cases. And they're of, still detained. And uh, Yeah. And some of them are still still And disappeared. Detained. One of them is still uh, on the mainland. One of them has reemerged, was in Hong Kong, left Hong Kong for his own safety to go to Taiwan. There has been a variety of events that have been self-censored. There are more bookstores that are now under the control of the Chinese state or under pro-Beijing pro forces. So it's getting harder to find 
critical publication you can still find and sell critical publications for criticizing the the Chinese Communist Party but it's not as easy to find them you can't find them as often at the book at the airport bookstore for example there've been a variety of things that have been chipping away and there hasn't been giant international pushback there haven't been giant protests so there was a feeling that maybe after the inability of the umbrella movement to achieve some of its goals that people were just in a despondent and more a- apathetic mode and that was a miscalculation when this happened. But some of the things that happened recently, one I think is really important to note, which was that in April, some of the leaders of the original leaders, of the Occupy movement, including two of the central leaders, a law professor, Benny Tai, who some people at UCI heard speak a few years ago when he came uh, to give a talk, and a sociology uh, professor, Chan Kin Man, were both sentenced in April on charges of creating or inciting a public nuisance uh, back in 2014. They were involved, they were moderate voices in many ways. They were calling for nonviolent civil disobedience, and they were sentenced to 16 months in prison each in maximum security prisons. So they're currently in maximum security prisons. So that happened in April. And then soon after that, there was the first big protest about the extradition law. So it was partly a kind of thing saying, well, even the independence of Hong Kong courts seems to be threatened. We really don't want to be at the mercy of mainland courts. There was even an idea, I I suppose, if people were thinking it through, that at least there's the possibility that Professors Chan and Tai will be out after 16 months. What if they had been tried in the mainland? Would they have gotten a sentence more like those that are given for people um, doing all sorts of things that can be rights lawyers and others have um, gotten sentences of 10 years or so. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. It's important to keep those two who are still in prison, others still in prison, including some young people as well. It's important to keep them in mind, even while attention is naturally focused on people like Joshua Wong being out of prison, people like um, Denise Ho doing these, these courageous in their own way, um, daring things. It's important not to lose sight of the, the prisoners of conscience. So apologies for, for really rushing you through this, but uh, to collapse a couple of questions in the, the last of the minutes we have together is how the mainland Chinese public is consuming this media and as Louisa Lim, who was here uh, two, three years, three years ago, the People's Republic of Amnesia writer and all, and she's covering this with like adding emergency podcasts and that kind of a thing. And she was saying this kind of demonstration of protests having consequences, having results, just drives the Chinese government absolutely to dread. So how what is being noticed by the 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 public in the PRC, and how is this going to be dealt with in the the pressure valve of the ratcheting of repression, ratcheting down on the Chinese public. So across the PRC since Tiananmen, the the government's policy has been to allow a certain amount of protest to let off steam, but to really worry about things that do certain things, that connect people across locations and across social classes. Uh, when anything when anything's limited to a single group, a single social group, a single locale, a degree of tolerance can be exercised. But when things connect people across borders, that is what strikes fear into the Chinese Communist Party. They realize what things like the solidarity movement that connected people across Poland and across social classes were able to do. They realize how the Tiananmen protests 
spread across the country. So in 2014, when the Hong Kong protests broke out, the biggest worry in Beijing was that any kind of sympathy protests would happen across the borders. So they tried to spin the story very carefully. They tried to prevent images of the inspiring crowds and the nonviolent crowds from, from circulating the mainland. They blocked Instagram, I think it was, for the first time then, oh. just so that images wouldn't go across. This time, they've begun, uh, they've, they've already control a lot of uh, foreign media. They block a lot of sites. They blocked even more. Um, they're also worried about images. But in 2014, then the first time there was a rowdy protest, the first time they could get footage of people engaging in um, activities that could be um, that could feed into their narrative of this being riots as opposed to demonstrations, they began then showing those images a lot. And they've done that again this time. They try to find images of conflict and whether or not the conflict begins with the things that police do, they, they, they show those images and they say, look at what's That's going how. on in Hong Kong. That's the and, workaround. Huh? And they find some images of these rather very small uh, pro-extradition law or pro-government uh, protests and they show those and they say... And they, you know, this is an era of fake news in many places. Yeah, I was they, thinking that. They could totally engineer no, two do. million people in support of the extradition. Well, they, at one point, they showed a shot of a huh. um, large crowd and said, this is people sh turning out to show their, their support. So, you know, there's, that's, the, that's the battle. And within the mainland, it's important to know that people get their, there are people who go over the firewall, get their news. They hear things from other people. There are people who, who know what's going on, and there are people who sympathize with the Hong Kong people. But there are also plenty of people who don't sympathize because of either what they don't know or that they think of Hong Kong um, as just totally separate from them and unlike them. Well, Jeff, I guess Carrie Lam's days are numbered, though. She's she stumbled. She's fallen flat on her nose. She's not going to last. She's out of here. It's hard to see her lasting. It's also, though... Um, it's 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 there have been leaders who've fallen before when there have been big protests. So it would be this would be something it would be easy to imagine her falling. Will she be replaced by anyone better? It's hard to imagine that. So, you know, the, the problems really are structural more than her. But she does make a power uh, symbol right now of her outrage. Well, I want to thank you so much for bearing with this uh, this rush job here. I want to thank Jeff Wasserstrom. Chancellor's Professor of History at UCI for speaking with us on Ask Clear. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to close this interview with uh, a, an audio from Denise Ho's uh, leading the rally uh, and then the, all of the voices around the world. It's kind of affecting to see how many people. And, uh, it's also affecting to see that classic thing that um, the ambulance driving through two million people and how the Red Sea part it was a phenomenal thing so um, next week uh, I'm going to be having on David Pinsky and he's of Greenpeace and their ongoing campaign to wean producers and retailers from so much plastic and uh, we'll talk with you next week thank you everyone for listening <laughs>